You're listening to And welcome to another episode of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And today we have a very special episode for you.、Um, it's been a while since we did our last author interview, but on this episode we have Abigail Hing Wen, whose debut novel, Love Boat Taipei, just released this past week at booksellers everywhere.、Uh, we had a great conversation with her, talking about her inspirations writing the book, about Love Boat, as well as all the amazing characters that are in it.、Um, I think she She mentioned about 30 Asian characters, all with individual drives,、um, wants, dreams, and backgrounds, which is pretty amazing for a story. And without further ado, here's our talk with Abigail. And we're here with Abigail King Wen,、um, the author of Love Boat Taipei here on Books and Boba. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. I, as I mentioned to you when I heard the name Books and Boba, I'm like, I need to talk with them. <laughs> so、yeah. I'm super excited、yeah. to be here. We're super excited. Congratulations, by the way, that your book just came out this past week. You just, you were just telling me how it's already sold out in the Bay Area.、Ooh. Yeah. And the, the distributor actually is sold out. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my publisher is replenishing now. Awesome. Congratulations. Um, I guess speaking of boba, I guess we could start out. What's your,、um, what type of、uh, boba drink are you into these days? What's your current jam? So, Teaspoon is a bubble tea shop in the Bay Area, and they created a special drink called Passion Attraction just for the book, which、oh. blew me away. And it's passion fruit juice, peach juice, and passion fruit seeds instead、oh, wow. of the boba. <laughs> so, I love it. I had it、uh, at my lunch party at Kepler's on January 6th, and it was so good. Awesome. That's a lot of so, passion fruit. <laughs> a lot of passion fruit. Yeah. yeah. So it's like it's in their stores now. And、um, I'm just, I just can't believe it. It's so thrilling. Awesome. Well, let's talk about your book.、Um, I guess for our listeners who haven't heard of your book yet, what is Love Bull Taipei? Love Boat Taipei is a real program that's <laughs> been in Taiwan since the 1960s. Parents would, be, would send their kids there to learn language and culture and to find a spouse. And I went on the program myself and You know, really discovered it was the party of a lifetime. It's notorious in certain circles in the Asian American community where, like, you know, it's, it's funny, like, when the book started to get some buzz, even people like at my husband's work, like, hey, I know like five people who went on the boat. And, <laughs> and, you know, of course, like, now that we're starting to meet with people, like, so many people are coming out of the woodwork, hey, I, I was on the boat too. And you, know, you find out what year they were. And it really is this is kind of this cool bonding. Thing that's going on, but like, like either you went on the boat, you knew someone who went on the boat, or you've <laughs> read the book and know about this crazy program now.、Um, so, the book itself is the story of a girl named Ever Wong who is going to medical school. It's one of these seven year programs that will accelerate her track, but secretly longs to dance. And she's really wrestling with this and, you know, not wanting to let down her parents who want her to go, her father. Um, was trained as a doctor in Asia, but wasn't able to practice in the United States. And you know, instead, he's been an orderly at the Cleveland Clinic for all these years, really sacrificing a lot to make sure Ever and her sister could have a good life in the United States. And so she's really under some pressure, I think, some of that self imposed, some that's actually imposed、um, to, you know, make, to, to repay her parents and to, to really help them to fulfill the dreams that they have for her. 
Yeah, I read the book and it's amazing. Um, everyone should go buy it if they can at their local bookstore. Um, and I love that it was a it was a coming of age story. You know, the type a lot of people are familiar with. Someone goes on like the trip of a lifetime, has their whole uh, worldview changed through the events. But this story is a coming of age story from such a Asian American, specifically Chinese American, Taiwanese American um, lens that like I couldn't help but like really. Like I was invested in it from like the jump, um, because you have so many characters in this story that are from so many different backgrounds, and they're all people that I knew either growing up or going to college with, or people that I know today. And I think that's really awesome. You know, we we talk a lot about representation, especially in in media, um, and in in the case of this podcast, in the literary world. You know, people writing characters, people introducing new stories, and having like one book have so many different kinds of individuals, characters who happen to be Chinese American, was such like what's really amazing to read. And um, not only you know the students, but also a lot of different types of adults too. And I guess getting to my question. Um, where, where did the characters come from? Are these all people that you went to Love Boat with? Or are these people that, you know, you, you developed through, you know, research and talking to people who went on Love Boat? So the original idea behind the book was was hoping to showcase some of the diversity in the Asian American community. So um, there's a cast of over 30 diverse characters. And I think part of the reason why I had so many characters is it took me a long time to figure out who was supposed to go on this trip. Like I knew that it was a transformational trip going to a country of your parents' origins um, and – being able to see, you know, to be on your own for the first time as a young person in an environment where you've got other um, other Asian American peers. It's, it's a really unique experience for someone who's been a minority and growing up in Ohio without any other Asian Americans around. So um, part of it, I think, was just experimenting with so many different characters initially. Like, okay, does this character need to go and does that character need to go? <laughs> um, and eventually it came down to, you know, if the four main characters ever – who's the dancer struggling with um, whether she should continue on this path to med school. Rick, who is um, in every parent's eyes, like the perfect child prodigy. He you know, won all these awards. He was profiled in the World Journal. He's going to Yale. He plays football. And yet, you know, he's struggling with his own issues, as you find out in the story. Um, and then there's, of course, some issues around learning disabilities, um, some mental health issues, people who are interested in politics, um, people who are athletic people who are not athletic and you know just everyone has their own different struggles and i think i've just maybe collected those sensibilities over the years and just being in the community myself yeah was ever the protagonist from the very start uh when you started writing the book because you have all of these amazing characters and i'm sure it's really hard to figure out like which perspective you're gonna focus on for the rest of the book right right so originally i wrote the story from four different points of view it was ever rick sophie and xavier and I was alternating between their viewpoints. And then what I found was that it, 120,000 words wasn't enough to do four different main characters justice. Oh, gosh. So I ended up scrapping the entire novel. It was, I remember it was a really tough moment for me when I realized, okay, this is just not working. And I decided to write the whole story from one point of view. And that's when I chose Ever. And I chose uh, to write it from first person present tense instead of third person past tense. And it made a really big difference. And, and then what I found, you know, magically, miraculously, it was that having done all that work with the other characters really paid off. And I think that's why they ended up feeling so well-rounded and multidimensional is because I just know them so well. Yeah. And like I said before, it's such a 
Asian American coming of age story where the issues that they're dealing with, it's something any child of immigrants can relate to. A lot of the more classic coming of age stories is about people overcoming in their personal challenges to become like an individual. And for, you know, children of immigrants, especially Asian American immigrants, a lot of that comes with our identity with, are we our parents' dreams? Like, are we an extension of that as well? And the tension is so... Um, it's real. Real. Yeah. Yeah. It's really there. I, I mean, definitely when you're not in that culture, sometimes it can be hard to understand that. Like, mm-hmm. I definitely had readers in earlier drafts, like, well, we don't really understand why she can't just go to do what she wants, right? And I think Megan, her best friend, is a little bit like that. That's that's Maybe that's where her voice is coming from. Like, why can't you just say no to your parents? And I think I, when I would get feedback like that, I realized, okay, part of my work as the writer here is trying to convey why it is so hard forever to say no to her parents. And, you know, a lot of that is like she loves them. Yeah. And they've sacrificed so much for her. And I think there's also a sense in in her family, and I think which is true for many Asian American families, like that you are and – she, and she says herself, like I, she is a Wong first before she's ever. The more of that sense of community and family – the family ties are really strong. Um, which I think sometimes is hard to understand in the United States where there's much more emphasis placed on individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, all that's changing. And then there's, you know, obviously more Asian American families where that's not going to be the case. Um, but it definitely comes out of more of that community culture. Yeah. And definitely another part of the coming of age that's unique to Asian Americans, I feel like, is that that point in time when you find out that you're not alone and you find other people that have similar experiences but different. Right. You know, I think, um, like, personally, I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, so I always grew up amongst Asians. But I definitely relate to the fact that, like, once you, once you get put in a situation where you're in close proximity with, like, people that are like you, you know, you kind of feel less less alone. And I think that's a really, you know, it's, it's a universal thing, but it's also specifically an, an Asian-American thing that I, I found with a lot of friends that come from places like Michigan, like Ohio, like the the Midwest, where they literally were the only Asian kid in their school. It's, it's quite a jarring experience <laughs> <laughs> to see like so many people who actually look like you. And um, yeah, it's just it, it's just so specific to the Asian American experience. And um, even though it's it's so specific, I'm pretty sure people outside of the Asian American <laughs> community can relate to it because it is a coming of age story. It is about coming into your own and uh, finding your own path and, you know, having family expectations. I'm sure that there are non-Asian families that want their kids to be lawyers and doctors and <laughs> and have like a fancy uh, scholarship to to a fancy private school. But, you know, like I think that will resonate with a lot of your younger readers. Um, have you gotten uh, any early feedback from uh, teen readers who are in like the uh, target audience for your book? Mm-hmm, definitely. I'm starting to get it. And it, it, I was actually texting my college roommate that I was almost crying because um, I am hearing people say how much they relate and resonate and they're seeing themselves in the characters and their journeys, especially with their parents um, or feeling like they haven't been seen. Uh, there's a, a girl on my HarperCollins team named Jane who she when I first met her she's she told me she'd read the book three times and had never felt so seen before and I mean that's actually how I felt when I went on Love Boat myself um, I mean I think also what you're you're pointing out is you know we Asian Americans are a visible minority right so wherever you go you can't really hide the fact that you are a minority um, and and that your family immigrated at some point to the United States even though everyone's family is immigrated to the United States. <laughs> Um, I just did a panel yesterday with Stacy Lee and Yangsha Chu, and 
you know, we pointed out, like, I'm a second generation immigrant. Stacy is a fourth generation and Yangsha is a, sec- a first generation immigrant. And, and Stacy said, you know, yet we all look like the same, right, in some ways. So I think that is like a special experience that ever has. Like she's used to just attracting attention that she doesn't really want wherever she goes. People will look at her. And then when she goes to Taiwan, suddenly no one's looking at her. And she actually loves that. She loves blending in. And I, But I've interviewed other people who grew up in that way. And when they when they enter an environment where they're no longer standing out, um, like you said, it's jarring. And some of them actually don't like it. It's uncomfortable <laughs> for them. <laughs> it's uncomfortable for them for, to be anonymous and to blend in. One thing that your book illustrates very clearly is there is no monolith of Asian American or Chinese American. Like mm-hmm. everyone right. is an individual. It's, even the parents, like you have different types of parents in your story. You have your quote unquote stereotypical like tiger mom type of character, but you also have like rich, aloof mom and also like the mom that just wants you to have babies right away, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> are there any cool parents? There are actually, yeah. I don't know how much they made it onto the page. So, like, I love, there's so many, so many characters that are off the page. Yeah. Um, did you visit Taipei again while you were writing the book? I did. Yeah. So after I wrote my first drafts and I kind of had the book in some semblance of order, I took a trip by myself to Taiwan and I visited the Chenton campus again and did a tour around the island, which is part of the the program. And it was great. I really definitely felt like I was able to connect in a deeper way to the characters and how they would be feeling while they were there. I'm sure it was a different experience when you went as a teenager. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, one thing that struck me on my trip this past time was how much food would connect her back to home. You know, so when I saw a platter of fried eggs, I'm like, oh, that's exactly like what my parents would, you know, make. And the sausages and the tropical fruits that her mother loves, like all those are moments when she's like, okay, I remember, you know, I think about them. And even in in those moments, she actually doesn't want to think about her parents, but they, they kind of bring them back into her, you know. Yeah. Presence. It's not an Asian American book without great food. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to joke that one of the best things about being Chinese was the food. Every, and I usually say that every time I sit down to dim sum. <laughs> <laughs> this book is also a really fun, like, YA rom-com romp. You, you fit so many tropes into this book. You have um, Rira's favorite fake relationship. Yeah. You have um, <laughs> love triangles. And you also have, like, the... Um, let's save the community center talent showcase at the end of the book. Yeah, I really enjoyed that part. In fact, um, I, I didn't even notice until you pointed it out. But you're right. Like, I did end up getting a lot in there. And I remember in an early draft talking with um, someone who was trying to critique the novel. And she's like, you know, the, the fake relationship, like, that could be the whole entire book. You should just cut everything else out and just focus <laughs> on that. And I was like, no, I think I'd be bored if the whole story was just that. Um, because it's not not because it's not a good story, but it's been done so many mm-hmm. times and done really well by other people. Um, but I think that was, for me, that's like my value added is I I crammed a lot in. Like, it's a really <laughs> dense, densely packed story with like all these different threads are intertwined yeah. into each other. And I, I think I just enjoyed that. And Figuring out how to make it all work together seamlessly was the the big challenge. And one of the reasons I think I like to write so much is writing a novel is the most complicated problem that I've ever tried to solve. And I've worked on a lot of complicated problems. <laughs> so this is your this is your debut novel, right? Yeah. Like when did you start writing this book and when did it become like something that you knew was gonna become a novel? Like how was that journey for you? I've been writing for 12 years. Um, so I mentioned I started writing a fantasy novel when my I was pregnant with my second child. And it took me a really long time to have something that 
got through the gates. Um, I had written one novel, sent out to agents, got rejected. Second novel got me an agent, but I couldn't get it through the marketing team. Like it actually, there was an editor who'd read it overnight, loved it. Um, marketing team like, oh, we don't know if we can market it. And I had another book, same thing exact happened. Like editor read it overnight, couldn't get it through marketing. Uh, along the way, I got my MFA in writing, and that was really important, I think, for developing my craft. But um, I think, you know, my friend Saba Tahira at my debut party, um, she said, this was the book that was meant to be your first one. And so here it is. And, you know, in retrospect, like going through all that, all those ups and downs of, you know, coming close and then not getting there, I, it's made me much more resilient about the writing. I know that there's still a long way to go and um, with everything, but I feel like this book is coming out really strongly. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that I'm coming out with a work that is seems to be resonating with so many different types of people. And I'm grateful. Uh, was there a favorite scene that uh, you want to share with us from the book? Uh, so I have some favorite scenes, but I think they'd be spoilers. Oh, so, no. but I, I, yeah, I do. I love all the dancing scenes. Um, so I, I danced a lot growing up. I was a ballet, did ballet, show choir, and dance squad. Oh wow! And I, I, and I have an. There's a flow. There's a rhythm to the book of dance sequences. And if you look at, you know, if you look at it again, you'll see like there's one in the beginning where she's practicing for an audition with her best friend, and they do a duet together. And then there are other dance scenes. There's stick fighting, which I she eventually will make her own and incorporates into her dance routine. Um, and then, of course, there's a big finale at the end when it all comes together. So I think I, those scenes are really fleshed out very vividly in my head, and I enjoy those. They're really well written too. They're a lot of fun to read. I'm pretty excited because I love ballet. I think I, have, right. I think I have seen every single dance movie, so Yay. I'm pretty excited. <laughs> I did love all the um, kind of Easter eggs you slipped in there of like if anyone grew up in a like a, a Mandarin speaking household, they would pick up on like like World Journal. And... Mm-hmm. I just talked to them. Actually, they're, <laughs> they're, they wrote an article that just came out this week. Yeah. And then we all know that one kid that our parents like to um, compare us to. Yep. Absolutely. You know? And it keeps going on into your adulthood. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Look at that other parent who's so much <laughs> parenting their kids better than you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's always a competition, right? Yeah. yeah. My parents are, look, look, all these, all your friends are married with kids. When are yeah, you there you go. <laughs> it's always like, oh, no dating until like college, right? And then as soon as you graduate from college, it's just like, when are you getting married? Why do you not, like, why are you not dating? I think that's literally a line in your There's book. A line. That's exactly <laughs> a line in my book. <laughs> all in a day, you're expected to get married and produce the heir to the throne. And I think that's something that actually other cultures relate to as well. I've definitely heard stories from my friends who are Jewish American, and my editor's Italian American, and yeah. she also finds that there's a lot of similarities with her family. Uh, were there any like uh, really funny or ridiculous uh, love boat stories that you've heard from the people around you? Yes, I've heard so many stories. Um, so I wrote the whole book first before I in- I interviewed anyone. Um, and I partly wanted to do that just to make sure I could kind of get it out myself. And of course, I talked to my husband extensively, who was also a love boat alum. But after I wrote it, I did interview a number of people, and I got all kinds of crazy stories. Most of them did not, like mo- the vast majority are not in the book. <laughs> but my favorite one I heard very recently, and there were apparently 80 guys broke into a Chinese antique shop. Okay. And they were yeah. facing either jail in Taiwan or getting sent home. So, of course, they all got sent home. But I was like, wow, nothing that bad happened in my year. But there was definitely other stories of, you know, kids who um, – Actually, there's some tragic stories, too. There's a kid who drowned like, a year or two before my my year. Um, and 
think someone got a shoe thrown in their face because like, people are climbing over the walls and they have to throw the shoes over first. And then, <laughs> and so someone I think was saying there was a bus ride that was really long and people couldn't go to the bathroom. So somebody went to the bathroom on the bus. Oh. <laughs> so that one's definitely not in the story. Um, but yeah, there was, there's, I think everyone who went to Love Boat has a handful of crazy stories. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that I did notice from my friends that did go is they all came back with a renewed, if not passion, respect for Taiwan, which happens when um, a city is different if you go on your own than with your parents, right? Like for the longest time, I went back to Taiwan every summer as a kid, but it's always with my parents, always with my grandparents. We didn't do anything. My grandma wouldn't let me go out on my own because she was afraid I'd get kidnapped, right? Mm-hmm. But the moment I went back as an adult and was able to just like kind of explore on my own, the city opened up and became a different thing. And that was what I saw happen to all, a lot of my friends who went on Love Boat. Yeah, I'm not sure um, it's the, if it's the same case with like Taiwanese Americans or Chinese American, but at least because I'm Korean American and I actually did go on a similar oh, <laughs> similar trip at Yonsei, right? Uh, yes, yes. Um, but uh, I, I told Marvin before it's in a previous episode. I only lasted like maybe a week because I got really sick. But, oh no! Um, I was one of the tragic tales. <laughs> <laughs> I did get a story from Yonsei that appears in this one, um, but. Uh, when my parents talk about Seoul, uh, it's a completely different city than it is now. And every time I go visit, I go visit in spans of like three, four years. So every time I go, it is completely different and uh, old places are disappearing. And uh, the city that my parents grew up in and my grandparents uh grew up in and they talk about a lot, it just doesn't exist anymore. Is that the same thing with Taipei? Oh, that's a great question. Yes, it has I changed so, a lot yeah. as a city, for sure. It's, I mean, all of so much of Asia has modernized so quickly. The subway systems are incredible, especially because you know, they're all brand new and they're able to rethink things and use the best technology. And we saw that with cell phones. And, um, you know, I think it's just going to get more yeah. and more interesting. Uh, was there a specific character that was difficult to shape during your uh, drafting process? I know that you, um, you know, you went deep diving into each character that ended up in the book but was there one that was specifically difficult to get into the head of so not so much difficult to get into the head of but i think the one that was most difficult to write is jenna rick's girlfriend and i hope i'm not spoiling too much by talking about mm-hmm. that um and so you'll see like people sophie doesn't like her at first. she's like she's so clingy she's always monopolizing rick's time and rick's whole family do not like this girl like and it's a very crazy rich Asian situation. It, it does seem that way, right? And it turns out there's a lot more going on than people realize. And, you know, that that is actually part of the hope in writing that character in particular is everyone's got a backstory. And, like, it's it's always – there's always more going on than you realize. And actually she's a character – she's a very strong character in her own ways, very smart. Um, and she needs help. And I think there's a moment when they finally understand that and that's really important for the whole community, I think, to realize, like, oh, we've been judging this character. and But getting her on the page in the right way, I think, was the, the hardest part. And I'm not sure, you know, that I've completely done it right, but I definitely tried my best and felt like it was a story that was important to have in there. I mean, that was definitely something that I noticed while reading your book was you also managed to include representation for people with learning disabilities and mental health issues. And these are 
like these are real issues in our community uh, because people either don't talk about it or don't understand it. And you illustrate really well, like the consequences of not understanding things like having a learning disorder or having a mental health and how that shapes how people see themselves in their place in the world. And I think that's really, you know, in terms of representation, really great that you have that in your book, because I'm sure there are people going through that as well that can can relate. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it was a, it was important to me to talk about that in particular. I think sometimes being Asian American, we focus so much on our ethnicity and how that makes us stand out. And a lot of things that are quirky differences, we just, it gets chalked up to being Asian American. And actually it's not, it's related to having a learning difference or, or other issues that maybe if we weren't distracted by these other things, we would have noticed. But I also think there's, um, you know, our culture needs to move in this area, like in just embracing open conversations about learning differences. It's not something to be ashamed of. Like I think someone, when my kids were going through the school system, someone said, you know, classrooms are designed for girls and not boys necessarily. And not that we want to divide the world into girls and boys, but, you know, there's something to different learning styles. And some people are going to thrive better in an environment where you're sitting on a carpet in a circle and and listening to the teacher and other kids need to be much more hands-on and moving and active and have lots of breaks. And and that's all legitimate. Like, I think there's some statistic now that 20% of high school boys have been diagnosed with ADHD. You know, and there's there's reasons for that. I think it's not necessarily that there's a disability. It's really that their brains just work differently. And I, that was, I'm excited, you know, to have had that opportunity to explore that with some of the characters. Yeah, you can have uh, the same learning disability. But um, what I've noticed is um, because both of my brothers are autistic and um, I've, like, like in high school, I took care of um, other autistic children and special needs children uh, as part of like a babysitting program at church. Uh, but I've noticed that they were learning things completely different from like their white and black counterparts at school in their special classroom because um, like their parents, they they emphasize so much on um, making their kids learn how to speak. And that's not something that is really emphasized as much now. Now there's iPads. Now there's like uh, ways to train your kids to speak through pictures and um and I've noticed that a lot of Asian American families they don't know about uh, these programs right. and these There's ways a lot to of teach resources mm-hmm. because um, like just no one talks about it. There is no translation available, and uh, same thing with mental illnesses. Like mm-hmm. therapy is not really something that is talked about. Right. Yeah. So I'm really glad that that's actually in the book because I think it is very very different uh, in terms of like what non-Asian Americans with those disabilities experience and how they uh, are able to cope with mm-hmm. um, with those uh, challenges in their lives. Yeah, I think you really nailed, nailed it, um, that there's just lack of information being disseminated in, the, in parts of the community. So people don't understand that there's resources, that there's not really as much of a stigma attached to it as there may have been in like, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Are, are you planning on uh, writing a sequel for this book or? Oh, you are. Okay. So I have a two book deal on this. Um, so I am currently working on the sequel, which follows the story of a couple of the characters that people really wanted to know what would happen. And, and then there's just because there's so many characters and they all have so many interesting backstories, like there's really endless stories that I could write. Um, they're all swimming around in my head, and I need to just get them out at some point. I'm yeah. guessing that they're not on the love boat again in in the second book. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it. 
Yeah, because I might change, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with this book. I rewrote it from the ground up, so um, I'm still working through that now. I mean, something I noticed about Love Boat Kids is they stay in touch and they go back every, like, more often than not. And um, there's definitely a lot of ways to get them back together again, especially uh, because of the bonds that they um, they grow, they build um, on that trip. So um, It's also, like, we're in the second decade of, you know— like 2000 so people <laughs> can text and do whatsapp it's very very different from <laughs> from like the older generations of love boat i would say yeah well, well i think you know one of the things that uh, sophie says in the book is there's like a two degree of separation oh yeah among everyone right like i think in the regular world i've heard the number was six percent and then for some reason in the asian american community it's two percent and part of that is i think immigrant circles are small like you're all coming from certain cities and certain universities in asia even um, so the the parents tend to know each other, and then the kids eventually meet, and and you know going to similar schools. There's also just the general Asian American community around the in you know around yeah. the Love Boat community, and they um they're two degrees apart from each other. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the successful launch of your debut novel. Um, Thank you. Congratulations. Um, you have a very busy schedule ahead with your your launch tour and everything. So good luck with that. Uh, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about the book and contact you? My website's www.abigailhingwen.com. So that's probably the best source of just general information. And uh, I have a newsletter that I'm supposed to send out on a regular basis. I don't know how regular it will be, but um, it's another way of keeping up. And then, of course, I'm on social media, abigailhingwen uh, and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, I just remembered a question, but it's like a very uh, general question. What are you reading now or what do you recommend? Oh, man. So this is actually a really hard one for me right now because I've, so, I've been so busy with the book launch. Um, I am super excited about the books that I've um, – let me start over on this one. So I am in – I've in conversation with a number of really awesome authors. So tonight I'm at Romans with David and Nicola Yoon. I love both um, – all their books. David's um, Frankly in Love was amazing. And, of course, Nicola, I've been a huge fan of her works for a long time. I did um, – I just did an event with Saba Tahir at, Tep- at Kepler's, and I'm a huge fan of an Ember in the Ashes series. And as I mentioned, I talked with Yang Shichu and Stacey Lee recently. And, again, their yeah. books are fantastic. I mean, Stacey Lee, she has – so many books. So, yeah. 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 My husband is not a big fiction reader. And so when he asked us for recommendations, the two books I gave him were The Road by Cormac McCarthy, which is one of my all time favorites. And very different than Love Boat. It's, you know, <laughs> a dystopian, dark, dark uh, story. Um, but it's just incredibly brilliantly written. And uh, American Born Chinese by Jean Yang, because that one for me was the one like, okay, this is my story. Um. Congrats again on the launch. Um, best of luck for everything in the future. Good luck on writing the second novel. Thank you. I think I need that. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that was our interview with Abigail Hingwen, the author of the novel Love Boat Taipei, available now at booksellers everywhere. Um, thank you so much to Abigail for joining us on Books and Boba. And on that note, that'll also do it for this episode of Books and Boba. A quick reminder that our January 2020 book club pick is The Three Body Problem by Su Xing Lu, um, translated by Ken Lu. Hope you are making your way through that book. And don't forget to watch out for our regularly scheduled mid-month episode coming up next week, where we'll go over the latest book and publishing news um, in the world of Asian American literature. 
Rira, thanks again for joining me on this um, on this episode. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This episode was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and produced and edited by Marvin Yue. This podcast was recorded at the Potluck Podcast Studios located within the Visual Communications offices in downtown Los Angeles. You can learn more about Visual Communications and their programs such as the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival by going to their website at vcmedia.org. Thanks also to the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts that Books and Boba is a proud member of. You can learn more about our fellow Potluck Podcast by checking out the website podcastpotluck.com. Hey, Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 